0: Um, This morning, uh, I'm kind of wrapping up the the parenthetical section of Life in the Spirit, um, Lessons in Spirit-Filled Living. And this morning, I want to talk about the law and the spirit, what the difference is between living according to the law and living according to the Holy Spirit. And this is very, very important for every believer to come to an understanding of. Because we automatically and by nature live according to the flesh. I think you'll understand what I'm saying as we go along. But it is our nature to try to please God by giving it our best effort. Uh, that's true of people all over the world Uh, unless they are professing to be atheist in which case they may um, uh, you know may claim they have no religion atheism is another kind of religion Uh, but all over the world all religions are based on that fleshly effort to attain the ultimate whether that's Nirvana or some form of heaven or oneness with the universe or whatever it is that they're looking for. And as believers, we're inclined by nature to do the same kind of thing. That's just how we're wired, not by God, but by the enemy who is the constant accuser of all who would have faith toward God is to uh, burden them down and bring them into arduous labor to be religious. And uh, I'll talk in a moment about how uh, legalism ultimately leads us away from God and not to Him. But in the Gospel of John uh, chapter three, verse 17, in this passage, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he says, "I did not come to judge the world. The Son of Man did not come to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved." He declares to us that his purpose in coming was not to bring judgment. But to bring life and forgiveness and and uh, restore relationship with God in John eighteen fifteen to sixteen Jesus had every right to judge with truth and justice, but he did not come to judge those who are in the world again, if you look at the first section of that a passage in John eight it 's the story of a woman. Uh, caught in the act of adultery and that she's brought to Jesus to get him to affirm the law of Moses that she should be stoned to death. That's, uh, that's the point that they're making. And Jesus turns the tables on them by saying, well, that is the law. So whichever one of you has committed no sin you cast the first stone. Well, there was no one there that could live up to that challenge. And so, uh, one by one, they dropped their uh, stones and they walked away. And Jesus said to the woman, neither do I condemn you. He had every right to condemn her. He was the only perfect one in the crowd. And he had every right to condemn her, but he chose not to because He did not come to judge the world at that moment. And He released her. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, one day Jesus will judge the world. But that is a time to come. And in the present moment, we are privileged to share a message of good news that Jesus is willing to forgive and forget all of our sin because he paid the price for our punishment on the cross. So in Colossians chapter 2 verses 20 to 23 and I want to read this passage for you. In Colossians 2:20 if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world Why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Uh, When you look at that verse and kind of take it apart, Paul asks the question, if you've died with Christ, why do you submit yourself to fleshly rules? In other words... Um, A religion that is based on a list of do's and don'ts which have been created, in some senses, by God or by human beings. And you are attempting to perform those duties in order to gain uh, acceptance with God. Religion is based on human effort to find favor with God. It's based on rules. We need to, and this goes back to what I said as I was introducing this, we need to recognize that it is our tendency, naturally, because we've done it all of our lives until we came to Christ, and it's a hard habit to break, that we are inclined to try to please God by the performance of what we think He expects. So, and if we don't do that, He judges us. And we have to pay the price. Uh, What does that look like? Um, Well, how many times have you heard someone say when something terrible has happened to them or to a family member, what did I do that God is punishing me for this? Why is God angry with me? Why is He bringing this punishment on me? And believers ask those questions. And what does the Scripture say? For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. Jesus Christ has borne the judgment on the cross. He has carried... The weight of our sin. So, it's true that there's a certain law of reaping and sowing. I mean, if you do dumb things, you're likely to get dumb fruit. You know, uh, if you cross the walk without looking, uh, and you get hit by a car, well, God's not punishing you. You just did a stupid thing. But the good news is God is with you and He cares about you. And He loves you even in your absent-mindedness. And He's there to minister to you, not to punish you. It's not because you did something wrong that God punishes. But we think that way. I have to perform in order to keep God happy. I have to do everything He says in order to live a life that is free from His judgment. And if I do the things that He says, then He will be good to me. And I will get the things I want. And God will bless me. Uh, I had a Christian friend one time who uh, put a picture of the car that he wanted when he got rich and uh, he put it on the wall of his office and he his idea of uh, getting blessed was to try to please God in everything he did and God would make him rich and he could have that car not quite you know but we we have this kind of mindset that says the way I live my life in performance of religious duty will result in God's blessing of me or punishment of me. And that's how I'll get to be holy. In fact, if you have a background in Catholicism and you fully understand the doctrine Uh, of purgatory. In essence, what the teaching is, is that once you are saved through baptism as an infant, then you perform according to the rules and requirements of the church. You do good deeds. You amass a, a, a list Of things that you have done that are good for God and the kingdom. To the extent that you use your life to accomplish those good deeds. To that extent will you spend more or less time in purgatory. So the extent to which you have become sanctified in this life by doing good deeds, if you didn't do very many, you're going to be in purgatory a long time working off the rest of it. If you did a lot of stuff, you're going to be a relatively short time in purgatory, only a few hundred thousand years, and then that will enable you to work off what's left. And so that your sanctification ultimately is up to you to fill up your righteousness before God will let you into heaven. And uh, those people that did exceptionally well and uh, just outperformed everyone around them, uh, the church uh, declares them uh, as saints, and they're immediately translated into the presence of God on the authority of the Pope. Wouldn't you uh, like to have that kind of thing hanging over you every day when you get up? Let's see, how much good do I have to do today to take a few thousand years off of purgatory? And uh, that, by the way, is why other people can uh, pay for masses for you. Uh, To help you get out sooner if you didn't get enough done. You know, we look at that and we shake our heads and say, eh, that's not right. But, I grew up a Southern Baptist and for the last 40 years I've been in the Christian Missionary Alliance. And I want to tell you, I see the same kind of behavior It has different theology. It has different outcome. uh, But people are inclined to live the same way. Because they're trying to please God in the flesh. And notice what Paul says at the end of these verses. Self-made religion. Self-abasement and severe treatment of the body have no value against fleshly indulgence. In other words, they don't help. They don't help. And so people who try to please God through their best efforts still find that the struggle they have with sin is constant, that the habits they fight and battle with on a regular basis still defeat them and no matter how hard they try to be holy, they are not released from the desires of the flesh that war against God. And if If I were to go around and have a private conversation with every one of you here this morning, a good many of you will have dark secrets of habits and inner performance that you wouldn't want anyone else in this room to know about. And no matter how well you try to live the Christian life on your own, the reality is... You're not going to please God in that fashion. (coughs) And you're going to suffer the consequence of the flesh that is in no way suppressed or conquered. So this leads me to say, and, and this is actually the conclusion of last week's message, but I felt it was worth going over. The Bible, if the Bible does not specifically prohibit a thing, we have no basis for creating a rule against it or judging those who practice it. Are you with me? If you cannot point to a chapter and verse that says, Thou shalt not then we have no right to even suggest that you should not. Now, the Holy Spirit may tell you you shouldn't do something, or that it's okay for you to do something, and that's His leadership in your life, which I'll get to in a little while, but we have no business making rules that we think are going to help people be holy i told you a week or two ago about the rule that at the uh, christian college we went to that uh, had a, a dress code length for women's skirts and uh, if they looked too short they were brought into the dean's office and Uh, asked to kneel on the floor and they put a tape measure from the floor to the hem of their skirt or dress and if it was more than two inches, go back to the dorm and change. Why did they do that? Well, they didn't want the women to look too sexy and they didn't want the guys to have a problem. Guess what? Guys will have a problem no matter what. And skirt length is not going to make any difference. Guys have unbelievable imaginations. They can fill in the blanks with or without a skirt length. That doesn't help anything. It doesn't do a thing. And first of, first of all, it's not the woman's fault if some guy's lusting after her. That's his fault. Now, you can dress wisely or unwisely, and that's your choice before the Lord. But the guy is the one who's suffering because of his own fleshly indulgence. That's his nature and his problem that he needs to deal with. So where is the verse that says your skirt cannot be shorter than two inches off the floor when you're kneeling? Can anybody tell me the chapter and verse? No. So why do we make those rules? Is playing cards an evil game? I grew up being taught that it was. It was a terrible game. You did not play cards. Well, you might play bridge or gin rummy, but you couldn't play poker. Um, my dad worked for the railroad, and one of his clients was the Tampa Touchdown Club. And every year they would give him some gift for um, taking care of their trips to the University of Florida uh, ball games. And uh, one year they gave him a um, spinning rack of poker chips with two decks of cards. And my cousins and I and my brother, we thought that was the greatest thing. I mean, that was so much fun. So we were out on the screen porch one day, and we had this carousel of poker chips out. We had our stacks, and we had the cards out, and we were playing poker. And my Aunt tiny, tiny, Tiny was not Tiny, but that was her name. My Aunt Tiny came to visit. My Aunt Tiny was a deacon's wife from Dover, Dover, Florida. And uh, she was very old-fashioned in her viewpoint. And when my mother looked out the window and saw that Aunt Tiny had pulled into the driveway, she had a conniption. She's out there trying to get us to put everything away and stop what we're doing and put all the chips back and get, get that place cleaned up and go back to Monopoly or something benign like that, you know? Well, we didn't want to do that, so we weren't moving with great haste, and my Aunt Tiny discovered us, and I don't know what all transpired. I think it was a good while before my mother heard the end of it, but... Um, That was, you know, that was the way I was raised. What verse in the Bible says thou shalt not play cards? Can you think of one? I can't. There's a lot of verses, if you're actually gambling with real money, there's a lot of verses that talk about wise use of your money, good stewardship. Um, You can... Apply that to your own heart by the Holy Spirit as he talks to you about it. But there's not a verse that prohibits that. And so we make these rules up and they become the guiding principles of our holiness. Jesus had a comment to make about that regarding the Pharisees. I quoted this to you last week. He said, you search the world over trying to make a single convert to your ways. And when you find that person, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you yourselves. What's the point? People that have that mindset, that legalistic judgmentalism, become hostile and ornery, and impossible to be around, and they really bring a damper on life to everyone. If finding God depends on them, there's not a chance. Because who wants that except other people who are wired that way? On the other hand, if the Bible does speak specifically to a matter... We cannot obey the command apart from the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Here's the problem. Genuine holiness that has a lot to do with attitude can only be observed in the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't have the ability to continuously produce godly character. It's not in us. We were born in sin. And we are sinners by nature. It takes the transforming power of God to make us different. And it is the presence of His Holy Spirit guiding us that motivates us toward the character of God and reproduces the life of Christ in us. It doesn't come any other way. And so even if the Bible has something specifically to say about it, how should we use the Scripture when we read it and it brings conviction upon us and we say, Lord, I'm not doing that. Should you try harder to do it? Frankly, no. You should give it to Him and say, Lord, I agree with You. This should not be a part of my life. I am leaning on You To take it out of my life. And to transform me. I'm asking you to make me different. Because the truth is. The harder you try to avoid a specific sin. The more you will be dragged into that sin. Are you with me? You understand what I'm saying? Where does the Bible say to Fix our attention, our eyes. If you have died and are hidden with Christ in God, keep seeking those things that you're struggling with. Keep your mind on your problems. Observe your inconsistencies. Dwell on your sins so that you can please God. Does it say that? It's Colossians 3. No, it says keep seeking those things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Our responsibility is to keep our focus on Jesus. If you focus on a particular sin, that's going to be what occupies your mind. And guess what happens when your mind is occupied by some behavior that is not godly that's where you're going to dwell that's where your thoughts are going to be and you're going to notice things that you never saw before I'm tempted to illustrate it but the fact is if I do illustrate it (laughs) I could pick one for everyone in the room we may all struggle with different things But if you focus on your sin, you have your eyes off of Jesus and on yourself. And you are the one who are trying to make yourself righteous. And it will not work. You have to fix your attention on Jesus Christ. So how do we have a proper understanding between faith and the law? There are two verses in Scripture that seem diametrically opposed to one another. One of them is Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, where Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. So Paul says our salvation is based on faith. And it's a faith that we don't even muster. It's a faith that is a gift of God. The salvation and the faith come from Him. But James writes, someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. You show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? So you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. So, when you read these two verses at, at uh, first glance, it looks like they're opposed. But what the Scripture is actually teaching is that we are saved by faith. Not a result of works that no one should boast in that. But once we're saved and the Holy Spirit comes to live in our lives and we are transformed... If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. 2 Corinthians 5.17 There is a transformation of character and it results in a life that is different. A life that people can see is different. James says, show me your faith without works. Well, how do you do that? Do you keep it in your wallet? Can you you pull out your wallet and and present a card of faith? Do you keep it in your purse? Is it in a bottle on your bathroom counter where you spray it on like cologne in the morning? How do you have faith without works? How can anybody see it? Faith is a quality of life that is reflected in the character of life. And it results in behavior that looks like Jesus. And the longer you live in Him by faith, the more you look like Him. The Holy Spirit begins here and moves you along through a sequence of learning experiences where you cast yourself upon Him and He changes you to look more like Jesus. So what James is simply saying is, and this is a quote from Jesus, if you love Me, you will keep My commandments. You can read that verse two ways. You can say, keep My commandments, that proves you love Me. No, it doesn't. What he's really saying is, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love someone, don't you want to please them? Don't you have a desire to make them happy, to to walk in harmony with them? Don't you want to 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 be connected at a deep level if you love them. Jesus said, if you love me, if you love me, your natural desire will be to please me by keeping my commandments. James says, that's how you demonstrate that you have faith. You can't show somebody a bottle of your faith. But you can show them your life, which reflects your confidence and trust in Jesus Christ. And so these verses are complementary, not contrary. So living by the Holy Spirit and not by our own efforts. Romans 8 1 4 says, let me turn there read it so I don't quote it wrong. Therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For what the law of the spirit of life in Christ for the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. This is this is important. To grasp The sin that pulls you down is a part of the old nature. And quite honestly, it is impossible apart from Jesus Christ not to sin. You will be pulled down in one way or another until you come to faith in Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that all sin falls into one of three categories. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. And the boastful pride of life. And if you analyze that, he's saying sin is either coming from your body, wanting gratification in some way, illicitly, or... It's coming from what you see and want to possess materialistically. Or it's coming from your desire to be the head person on top, in charge, in control. And that desire to be in control... Translate that into the times in our country when the political races are heating up, (laughs) you know, and there's that passion to be the one who wins so they can be in charge. Sometimes that's an altruistic desire, although you have to be careful, it's tainted. Sometimes it's just pure passion for power. But all sin falls into those categories. And apart from Jesus Christ, we are in bondage to some, one, or more of those forms. They control us. And so when Paul says, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death, what it's saying is that Jesus liberates us from that bondage of sin and the flesh to pull us down. He he breaks the bonds of sin. And so He gives us power to do what we could not do before. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. In other words, Here's the law. What does the law say? Pick one. Don't do it. Okay. Or do it. You can summarize the law in two positives. If you look at the law, there are four declarations and then there are six prohibitions relative to our fellow men. You can summarize it in two two simple statements. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This is the first and great commandment. The second one is like it. Love your neighbor as much as you love yourself, the way you love yourself. Care for your neighbor the way you care for yourself. Now, that does not come natural to us, that is contrary to our nature. Even when we do altruistic deeds, benevolent kinds of goodness, we're holding back. And even if we give everything we have to the poor, as Paul says, and have not love, it amounts to nothing. Because when we do that, then we get proud of what we did. You see, you can't win. That's, that's a, a, a circle of impossibility. I gave all my money to the poor. Look at me. Well now you've just committed the boastful pride of life. It's a rare person that can give everything away and draw no attention to it whatsoever. That's why Jesus said, Go in your closet where your Father sees you pray and when you give alms, give in secret so no one has any clue what you're giving. Keep it all between you and God well boy that's no fun what good does it do me if I don't get some benefit from it some ways I wish we didn't have tax laws so that we didn't have to give a year end giving statement because it exposes the giving to at least one person And ideally, and it won't be too long before we don't have that exemption, so just hang around and it'll go away. And then we'll find out who really loves the Lord and who's interested in a tax break. So the law could not make us holy. It was weak through the flesh. "...but God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh." In other words, Jesus took all of the sin upon Himself on the cross. "...so that," verse 4, "...the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, or we could say according to our own strength and power." but according to the Spirit. So if we walk by the Spirit, we will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Because Jesus has broken that law of sin and death. We're free from it. We're birds out of the cage. We can fly. And He enables us to do that by the power of His Holy Spirit. If you want to be godly, don't focus on trying to make yourself better. Focus on loving Jesus with all your heart. And let Him just take over your life. He will produce in you godly character. And it may not look like the next person and it may not look like anybody's set of rules, but it will look like Jesus. And you may upset some of the most religious people around you. Do you know that? With whom did Jesus have the most difficulty? Pharisees and Sadducees. They were the ones that he had the hard, harshest things to say about because they were pure legalist, And legalism will always take you away from God. It will not draw you closer. It will take you away. And when you drift away because you, you, you're broken, you can't keep all the rules one of two things results i've said this many times over the years we need to get it in our heads we either become despondent because we cannot be holy by the rule definition or we become libertines because we just threw up our hands and gave up. It's not worth it. I'm going to live however I want. Because it doesn't make any difference anyway. Whereas loving Jesus and not worrying about the rest will produce in us all kinds of godliness. Galatians 5, 16 and 18 says walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh if you're led by the Spirit you are not under the law and I made a parenthetical note there I think that as believers we are even free from the Ten Commandments well, I realize that's going to give some of you heartburn But, I really do. However, those commandments reflect the character of God. And the Holy Spirit will produce in us that godly character. We will worship the Lord our God and serve Him alone. We will keep Him as the focus of our attention. And we will love Him with all of our hearts. And as a result of that, we will not abuse our neighbors. We, we won't lie to them. We won't steal from them. We won't want what they've got. We, we will rejoice with those who rejoice. It's automatic. But there are two segments of the law that we are clearly free from. One of them is the rules of the tabernacle and worship because they've all been fulfilled in Jesus. We don't have to bring a lamb here this morning and have it slain on the front steps before we come into this place. Jesus is the Lamb of God slain for our sin. And all that the tabernacle spoke to, it spoke to Jesus. And his life and character. And the dietary laws. When God spoke to Peter, he made it very clear. What God has said to eat, you eat. Let no one call unclean what I myself have declared to be clean. And so God removed the dietary laws. Follow the life of Paul. Follow his uh, trip to Antioch. uh, Look at how he lived. He was completely released in his spirit from all Jewish dietary regulations. And he said, you can eat whatever is put before you. And do so with thanksgiving. So... We need to recognize that when we're led by the Spirit, we will be perfect ladies and gentlemen. We will be sensitive to the culture. We will be lovers of people and lovers of God. And out of our lives will flow the character of Jesus Christ. And that is what is essential. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Meet our hearts with it and help us to see where we have rationalized our way into a dark corner. Bring us out into the light, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.